Welcome to this episode of the Beaver Legends podcast. And I was fortunate to be joined by Professor Joe Mayhew early one morning from New Zealand. And he gave a fascinating overview of his career in which he became a world authority in equine medicine and neurology. I hope you enjoy his inspiring stories. Thank you very much, Professor Mayhew, for uh, agreeing to uh, take part in this Beaver podcast. Uh, so my first question to you is why... Does a young boy from Auckland, New Zealand, decide he wants to be a vet? And why in particular uh, did you want to work with horses or did that come later on? Yeah, um, good morning, Tim, and it's good to have a quick chat. Um, I, I, To answer the question, I, I probably came to being um, a so-called horse vet very indirectly. I wasn't born on a farm, but I spent a lot of time on my uncle's farms, which were uh, sheep and beef cattle, as you can imagine. Um, and I did enjoy just working out in a rural setting from all aspects, socially and animals and the freedom of being outside. And so I thought I would be heading to something along agricultural lines. Um, and then when I was in university, I uh, I was almost coerced into doing what they call pre-med, which was the, the uh, coursework required for medicine, dentistry, and veterinary medicine. And at that stage, there wasn't a vet school in New Zealand. There were, we would be um, bursaried into attending one of the schools in Australia and then bound for three to five years when you got back to the government to work in a, a government-promoted practice. They were called vet clubs. Okay. Um, and I was still vacillating between medicine and veterinary medicine, but then found that the veterinary school was starting um, – in New Zealand in a year's time. So uh, I, I could have gone to Australia for veterinary medicine, but decided to wait until it started at Massey. And uh, so I did a bit more agriculture at Massey. I didn't complete an agricultural degree, but I did most of it and uh, and then went into the first intake of the vet school. Um, the, the move to equine work was a little serendipitous, I guess. Um, in, in fact, there's a, a little story that um, the top equine student was offered a post at where I ultimately went, but he had already committed to um, a practice in, in Christchurch, and uh, he I happened to be in his, um, well, what was called lab group, the group of three that you tended to do all your practicals with. And uh, mm. and he said, well, I don't think Joe's got a job, so why don't you ask him? So I, he asked me, and I didn't have a job, so I said, yeah, that's fine. And it was a predominantly equine practice, but lots of beef, cattle, and sheep as well. So, And that aspect suited me fine. Oh, and small animals. Mm. So although... Um, I wasn't a horsey person. 
I mean, I fell off lots of ponies at Pony Club, but that's about it. Um, <laughs> and and so I went to work for Jack. And in fact, um, we were on a surfing safari after our final exams and touring around New Zealand in a couple of old sports cars and some surfboards. And I got a call <laughs> from Jack Stewart to say, um, I'm, I think I'm going over to the Melbourne Cup, which is in about a week's time. Can you come down and start? So I had to break the surfing safari and head to practice in my MG car with a surfboard out the back. And so I started about six weeks early. And, uh, it was, it was you know, initiation by fire, but that's all right. Yeah. You survived? I think so. <laughs> and that was in New Zealand, yeah? Yes, that first yes, job was yes, in New yeah. Zealand. So I spent three years in that practice and uh, a fantastic introduction to life as much as mm. anything, yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. And then what happened after you say you were there for three years? Then, Yeah, then what well, I kept in touch a lot with my – we were very close with our lecturers and professors at Massey because we were the first class. and. Mm. They were under the microscope just as much as we were, as it were. Um, and, and how many of, of you were in that year, yeah, in the first year? There were, there were 32 of us that, in the first intake in 63, yeah. and, um, but there was quite an attrition for various reasons. Um, so there was actually 20 of us that graduated um, in the first intake. Um, as I said, we were very close with our lecturers, yeah. and I I maintained contact because I was fairly close in the practice, about um, mm. oh, 80 kilometres away, and and I was very tempted to go and do a graduate program in in pathology, actually, um, because of the people I was keeping in touch with. Um, but yeah. then they said, no, Joe, why don't you just go overseas and get some training there? So I applied to Guelph for an internship. It was actually called a diploma course in those days, a clinical diploma. Um, okay. But it was an internship. Um, yeah. And I was so bloody naive, I applied and they said yeah that's a good that's yeah you can have a place so i assumed it started in you know january february like our academic year but the northern hemisphere doesn't listen to us so they start in some time <laughs> halfway through the bloody year so <laughs> i i was all ready to go in in our summertime in january and then i realized oh no it's not till july so We'd already packed our bags, so we headed over to Australia for a while and did some okay. work over there um, and then caught up with the Northern Hemisphere in, uh, in Guelph, yeah. And then you stayed in the Northern Hemisphere for quite a while, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and with phenomenal opportunities that um, became available, they really quite amazing. Mm. So after Guelph, what, what you were there for your internship? So yeah. that was what um, followed on after that one. Again, I was I was very 
intrigued with pathology and um, and was tempted to stay and do a PhD there, as some of our professors had done at Guelph. They, several of them had been there. Mm. Um, but I thought, no, I do like this general clinical work. I was doing general large animal medicine. Um, I'm a bit bumble-fingered, so I didn't think I was going to do surgery, and uh, unlike some of you smart guys. But um, <laughs> and, and an opportunity came up because of the professor of pathology I was talking with at Guelph. Um, his mate was John Hughes, who's... Uh, was in reproduction, equine reproduction at Davis, and he said, oh, I've got a mate out in Davis that might give you a job. So uh, I, I applied out there and did a residency in large animal medicine and arrived with a with a, a combi Volkswagen van with um, pretty colored curtains and a long, long hair and a big beard, and they wondered what the hell had struck, but anyway. We met. It was the 1970s in California, right? That's right. So yeah, you're yeah. a few years late with the V double and the uh, <laughs> and, and, the, and the long hair. Yeah, and that was a um, residency in large animal medicine. So was that pre- predominantly equine? I assume from um, it was pretty. From where you mixed. ended up, or was that all species? Uh, the, okay. Yeah, the the uh, yeah certainly the the caseload was more equine for sure. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But we did everything, and I. I still really enjoyed the uh, comparative aspects. I mean, those little damn piglets have got some phenomenal diseases and they're (laughs) murder to play with, but um, they they have some amazing diseases. (laughs) Yeah. And obviously, you know, we we know you primarily – um, uh, from neurology, was it in, in neurology that, that 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 got hold of you at that time, or was that later on? Um, yeah, it it started at Guelph in my internship because um, one of the um, professors in in large animal medicine was um, she had a, a a strong interest in Laura Smith, her name was, and. She had a very strong interest in neurology and was uh, she she produced a lot of very good uh, work. Um, she had just finished working with Sandy Delahunter, and if anybody knows Sandy Delahunter, bless him, um, he he's so enthusiastic. It's just absolutely infectious, um, <laughs> and she had been infected basically and (laughs) it passed on to me i thought this was a fascinating subject that i knew nothing about i Mm. all i knew was uh distemper and wobbly horses and very little else um and and i was very keen on it and i was fortunate that when i went to davis that there was a strong neurology contingent there in in small animals, and mm. I naively wandered upstairs and talked to them and expressed an interest, and so I got involved with the neurology group and would get them to come and look at the large animal horses, at large animals, and, and 
I, I just uh, love to share that interest in it. So that's where it really started, yeah, in Davis. No, that's yeah. I mean, when I was at Edinburgh, and we'll come come on to Edinburgh later. And I do remember my only time I got to spend with you was in Small Animal with some puppies. <laughs> the way that the rotor works. So yeah, yes. I've I've always known you as a cross species clinician. Uh, so, but uh, so after um, after Davis, whereabouts did you head after your residency? Um, well, I partly because of the contacts through the Guelph Connections and the professor of pathology I was involved with there, I had an offer to go to Guelph, to Cornell to do a PhD. So I, uh, and and it was in, in uh, well, spinal cord disease of horses, but it was actually based in anatomy because of Sandy Delahunter's primary position was in anatomy, even though he was as much a pathologist and clinician. Um, so I worked with him and a team of of folk there um, for, for to do the, the PhD, um, and, and that really uh, finalized my interest in, in comparative neuropathology and, and, and clinical mm. equine Neurology. Mm. Yeah. So from Cornell, moved again, staying in yes, the US. I, but, yeah. When we left Australia, we would we were thinking we would, with a bag each, me and my wife Rachel, we, we would uh, head over to to Europe um, as one tended to do from New Zealand. <laughs> um, but um, I got. Uh, rather interested in, I guess because we were a pioneering group of students, um, there was a new school starting up in in Florida, and so I thought, now that's an interesting challenge to go and start up a new school. Oh, not me starting it up, but, but being be part, part of, of a team. And, yeah. um, and so I accepted a position down there, partly because I knew – uh, a girl that I had befriended through doing the neurology exams and things, uh, Cheryl Chrisman, uh, we had a like mind, um, and she was predominantly small animal neurology, and I we, we thought that having a team with one more interested in large animal neurology would work well, and, and it certainly did. We complemented each other and as far as our specialty interest went, but I was doing just, again, general large animal medicine mm. at that time. And, and you became a um, uh, professor there, I believe, didn't you, and chief of the hospital at the eventually? Yeah. Um, yeah, we were there for about 11 years, I think, and um, I had made f- some contacts with folk uh, in neurology and neuropath over in in Europe, but particularly mm. in the UK, but also in in Europe um, on the continent. Um, again, through connections of professors of ours in, uh, at Massey, and I took a chance to do a sabbatic leave with with Bill Blakemore in Cambridge, um, who is a fairly renowned neuropathologist and veterinary neuropathologist and a great friend. 
Cambridge, um, UK, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not your Cambridge. <laughs> yeah, the other Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, another six months with my professor of pathology, Bob Jolly, back at um, Massey uh, for six months doing it. So again, work on neuropathology and actually neurophysiology, where I taught myself a little bit of electrophysiology stuff. And then, so you sabbatical uh, to uh, Cambridge, and then the draw of East Anglia. I yeah. understand you then came to Newmarket and and Cambridge again, I believe. Yeah. Well, while I was in. Uh, Cambridge with um, with Bill Blakemore plus others. He had a big crew working with him, as you might know. Um, I I got to know some folk at the Animal Health Trust, and um, uh, and so I had heard quite a bit about it. And then this offer came up to to go over there, and we were still trying to finish our pathway to Europe, which was the initial aim. <laughs> <laughs> Only a few years. <laughs> years later, I think it was, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I joined the AHT, um, which was uh, which was quite an eye-opener to, to – to the British way of life and royalty and other things that I had had nothing to do with. Mm. Um, uh, so, you know, this naive Kiwi landing in the middle of Newmarket was uh, probably a fright to all of us, yeah. <laughs> Did you still have the long hair beard and the camper van um, at that point? Uh, unfortunately, no. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the right, ethos yeah. hadn't changed. Yeah, yeah, and then from Cambridge up to Edinburgh um, for quite a long time at Edinburgh. Yes, well, yeah, we yeah. really, really enjoyed Edinburgh. It, it, it is, um, I should say, it the other way round that New Zealand is uh, very much like parts of Scotland, and um, I mean, even Dunedin, the city, is the original name for Edinburgh, as you well know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we really did fit in extremely well. And I have to give thanks to, to Richard Halliwell, who was the dean when I w went there. Um, I think he he was still around when you were there, I, I, I believe. Yeah, he yeah. was the dean oh. when I was an undergraduate. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. right. Um, yeah. And he uh, was a huge help while we were both together in Florida. And it, it was through him that, I moved up to Edinburgh, um, and, and he he was a phenomenal help in so many ways. Brilliant bloke, he really is. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, we that's... we settled into Edinburgh extremely well. We really did, and uh, and there was a lot of activity in the school at that stage. It was developing and new hospitals, both. Large animal and small animal, as you well know. Um, yeah, and it was a and very you, exciting time. And as I mentioned before, you worked both sides, didn't you? A small and equine. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah, that was interesting because um, 
the specialties of small animal neurology were really growing very, very fast, but they were still based around neurosurgery, small animal surgery, because you couldn't really make a lot of money out of dealing with dying dogs with distemper and things. You had to cut them and fix them. And so, mm. um, and, and all the new imaging facilities were becoming available, um, which totally changed um, the the value of small animal neurology, um, yeah. basically the economics of it. Um, but there wasn't any developed at Edinburgh at that stage, so I sort of got called over the road to start looking at small animal cases and uh, mm. and, and tried to promote it. And, to de- and it has developed since then To as we recruited some neurology folk uh it's gone ahead and leaps and bounds yeah yeah and of course you uh am i right in thinking that you were then also involved with some of the grass sickness work while you were there oh as well, very much so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um the, the huge litany of 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 not a litany no that's not right a, a list of <laughs> of uh folk that were um involved in it from from way way back um mm. and even Mentioning a few names wouldn't be fair on how much work the Edinburgh School and the Grass Sickness Foundation um, was and is putting into to that huge problem. And it's a fascinating disease, as you will know, Tim. Mm. Um, it, um, it, it's almost the hinterland of, um, of medicine and neurology in the equine sphere, if you think about it. It's... Yeah. It's presented as a GI problem, but it has this phenomenal, phenomenal neuropathology involving the autonomic mm. nervous system that I had forgotten all about, you know. Um, mm. But so, so it was very attractive from my point of view, from my comparative point of view, and it's unique in in um, in, in human neuropathology. Um, there are certainly inherited diseases that are similar, but there aren't many common acquired mm. uh, autonomic neuronal degenerative processes in human medicine. So it was pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. And a big team of people working on it. Oh, still absolutely, working, yeah. It would be so. unfair to start naming names because – um, so many. It's consumed a lot of people's time and mine as well. It's a it's a horrible disease for the poor patients, but um, and one we're still seeing, unfortunately. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So after Edinburgh, back to New Zealand well, eventually. Yeah, I was um, uh, very happy in Edinburgh. Um, uh, but I had also become involved with Massey again, well, because I kept up the contacts with uh, various people, particularly Bob Jolly. I like to mention Bob's name because he's he's done so much for Massey and for me. Um, but um, I th- I'm pretty sure it was through Bob that the dean um, suggested that 
maybe I could come back to Massey and do exactly the same thing I was doing in Edinburgh and why not? And so I guess my question was, well, why not? Um, uh, the other point being that our daughter had also already been back to New Zealand and done a, some graduate work in Dunedin in her field. Um, and so the whole family had kept up this contact and, yeah, uh, the question was, well, why, why not just come back because, uh, you know, there's a few years left in you yet, but uh, maybe come back to your alma mater and yeah. it's pretty tempting. <laughs> and you couldn't say no. And you didn't that's say that's no. right. So, that's yeah. right, Tim, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you're still still working there now. Well, yeah, I'm. Um, I've retired from a full time position, but I I slowly um, reduced my work there. But although I still have contact and I'm involved with um, some of the projects going on, and I um, continue to uh, consult around the country a bit, um, and and. It, keep involved with some of the research again through Bob Jolly and also with the clinical rounds. I we, We'd have Zoom rounds with students and this sort of thing a couple of days a week. Um, not not all day, but we have yeah. uh, sessions, yeah. So it, it's, it's very it's, – I've been very lucky to be able to maintain that. No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's a lovely – Lovely overview of your your career up to, up up to date. So, as we have you here as one of the legends of Beaver, um, who are the legends that you looked up to in your career, and the people that you would say were the legends for you? Yeah, um, it's a it's a long list of people. <laughs> That have, that's fine. <laughs> that have helped me considerably, and I, that's, I think, one of the things I've tried to emulate um, to to help the next generation of 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 well, the next generation um, in any way you can. I think is one of the rewarding achievements that you can aim for. Um, so I've tried to to. Emulate them. I guess the the names that stand out would be my first boss, Jack Stewart, who was a a well recognised equine practitioner um, that I worked with for three years here in New Zealand. Um, and him and his wife, it was a solo. He had a solo practice to start with, and so I was the first one to work with him. Um, but he taught me so much about uh, an approach to veterinary medicine, which was more stop and think just because you've seen lots of material. If you don't take that chance to stop and think before acting, um, you'll make more mistakes than if you just take that time to think about what you're doing and which I guess is a um, a rather uh, sceptical approach to life of questioning everything, but that's what I've tended to do, I think, is to 
question everything, the what's and why's and how's of mm. what's going on. Um, and it, I think that's what he taught me, which helped a lot because at one stage I was very tempted to throw the whole lot in because I seemed to be overwhelmed um, mm. but realised that some of his advice was pretty secure. So I think Jack Stewart set the foundation. And then I've mentioned Bob Jolly's name so much already, I know, but he, he was the founding one of the founding professors of pathology at Massey and I, I was scared stiff of him when I was a student. I really was. And, um, and that, that was his um, means of attracting attention to his subject, I think, and, uh, and, you know, throwing a piece of chalk around the room was no problem to Bob. Um, <laughs> to attract uh, the students into the lectures. To see what everybody, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I learned so much about him. Maybe I was just scared into it, but um, <laughs> I, I owe a lot to Bob Jolly. Um, and, and Sandy Della Hunter, I suppose, at Cornell. I, I shouldn't say that glibly, bless him. He, he passed away, as some folk might know, um, just last year. Um, and, and he showed me um, what enthusiasm for your career can do. Um, he, he literally did the job of three people, and I'm, I'm not overemphasizing that. He was a full-time clinician, a full-time anatomy professor, and a full-time pathology professor all at once. <laughs> and for three years, he was head of the clinic at the same time. Blimey. And that's in one of the biggest and, and one of the higher ranking mm -hmm. schools in the world. Um, it, you can't say enough about that bloke, um, and, and he has a huge following of disciples, and I'm just one of them, I know, but um, I was fortunate to be able to sit down across a microscope and sit down over a cup of tea and talk about clinical exams and mm. uh, for, for about three, three years, yeah, um, and... It was the enthusiasm that you couldn't help absorbing. It really was amazing. Be infected he, by. Captivating when he would present something, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. So, look, there's well, lots of other folk I could go on and on about. No, no, that's – it's it, yeah, no, it's, it's – uh, I'm sure there are, but uh, – so just moving away from work, obviously you, you mentioned – um, your surf safari and uh, turning up in your camper van at, at uh, Davis. Um, so what are your passions away from work? What, what, what keep, um, keeps you sane? Yeah. I, I, I have had like lots of Kiwi blokes, um, an interest in, in sports in general, um, particularly in team sports. I've, like the camaraderie that you get with those sort of things. So I've tried to follow a bit of rugby. I still follow it. I don't do anything. But um, You're a Kiwi. It's kind yeah, of a law, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and and I, I was playing a bit of rugby in uh, Guelph and 
in Davis, um, ended up in hospital in Guelph at one of my first games because I didn't realize that the Guelph rugby team was basically the gridiron players that couldn't make it into the gridiron squad. And they would, I was playing halfback and they would, uh, most of them would be in the forwards and they would forget they didn't have all their crash helmet and stuff on and they'd come charging through the line out and, oh, bloody hell. Um, <laughs> so I ended up in the hospital and <laughs> for a bit of concussion, which is a sad part of rugby these days, as you might yeah. accept as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that we must do something about. Um, yeah. But I, I've tried to keep up a little bit of sport and – so I now try and I do a bit of running. I managed to struggle through a few marathons still, and I, uh, except for the COVID era, I was I, I, I did quite a lot of triathlons, and they were that's what I've really enjoyed the most, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's great. That's great. So returning. Back to your career, what one thing do you think you'd do differently, if anything? Yeah, I, I, I've never regretted any decisions I've made, and I've made some changes. People would say I've been a bit peripatetic and, and unorganized at floating around the world, but I've never regretted any of those decisions. I have, however on several occasions, given serious thought to moving to pathology, um, which always um, seemed to me to be getting closer to the actual guts of a disease, the cause, the way it progressed, uh, its outcome, its epidemiology, its its, and even its treatment. Uh, once you had a better handling on the pathologic aspects of the disease, whether they're biochemical pathology or morbid pathology, whatever. But the mm. and as that discipline has grown, especially with with um um metabolic and genetic developments um it's it's been and still is rather fascinating so i i i certainly at at least two points in my career was very close to switching to doing just pathology um i don't regret it at all because it's actually mm. the marriage of clinical and pathological work that i find so appealing relating the two, what you see under the microscope or on the PM floor, what, what, how does that relate to what you found in, when you were out mm. with dirty fingernails? Yeah. Yeah. And you may not have had this, but I suppose relatively and comparatively, what would you say in your career was the, your biggest failure and how did that failure change you or the way that you approach things? Yeah. Well, the, I, I pondered over this because you did give me that question, Tim. Um, <laughs> and um, 
just so anyone listening realizes that I've had to think about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a good thing, potentially. <laughs> yeah, 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 fair enough. I, the, 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 I've made lots of mistakes, and they're, I think if we can call them mistakes rather than errors, then then that's good. They're errors of judgment, but um, there are often very good reasons for why that comes about. But the one that stands in my mind is that um, I do keep thinking of is one that occurred while I was in practice. Um, and this is in Wanganui in New Zealand. Um, and I was fairly naive. I think it was probably about 1969 or something. And in those days, um, in New Zealand, which is quite selenium deficient, there was a lot of selenium products being used for farm animals. And then we realized that it had a role to play in horses. Um, and a product came out which was called EC. It was vitamin E and selenium, and it was an injectable product because up until then you had to add the selenium to the drenches or give it to horses in other ways. Um, and this injectable product came out and was very popular. And it's showing my age, I'm sure, but in in those days there weren't disposable syringes you used a syringe that you cleaned between each use and would mm. we tended to keep ours in methylated spirits after they had been cleaned and the needles and the syringe was sitting in a container with methylated spirits and so it wasn't the best system of um of administering um parenteral drugs but this injectable product came out and I had used it a few times and my boss, Jack Stewart, had used it quite a bit. And I went and administered it with this, this um, less than hygienic syringe system and to a horse um, at a stable and um, was called back on, I think it was late on a Sunday night, to see this poor horse. And it got black leg from the injection site mm. and I tried not to panic, although I was panicking um, mm. and immediately thought that I'd be able to do was in the neck. So I, and the neck was all swollen and the horse was in a very bad way and I couldn't get access to the trachea. The mm. swelling was so much. And the poor horse died, and I was just beside myself. Um, mm. it, it so happens that um, there was a, several court cases about the use of this product, which wasn't tested very well um, before release, and so the the product was withdrawn. Um, and I think. It was mainly that it caused so much local reaction that it allowed anaerobic diseases in a clostridia. I'm, uh, we never proved it, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was, refringens mm. or something. Um, mm. uh, it was taken off the market, but and that 
I suppose that helped my guilt in some ways, but I I do remember that mm. scenario pretty vividly, and I just well, I still remember it now. <laughs> yeah, sure. And it's yeah. not a nice thing, but I uh, try to rationalize the various different aspects of how it occurred and how I was involved, but it, it's not nice to remember. No, no. Uh, how did that change me? Um, again, I suppose, to stop and think, um, even with a licensed product and giving it the way it was supposed to be given, um, I had known that they can cause, and you would inform the client that it can cause a bad local reaction, uh, but it's much quicker and easier than drenching the horse with something mm. in selenium. So um, maybe uh, to stop and think even before you do that. Uh, mm. Just reinforcing. Yeah, it was reinforced. Good term. Good. Yeah. Good point. So moving on to slightly nicer things, what would you say you're the most proud of in your career? Oh, pr proud of the of all the people that have helped me do what I have been able to do. Jeepers! It's um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a. a Little bit of a roller coaster, but it's always had this bright light at the end of it, which has been <laughs> because of these people that help you. Um, I, I suppose the thing I'm most proud of was the the Doctor of Science that I ended up um, with from Massey, and again, it was my mentor Bob Jolly, the pathologist at Massey, that talked me into that. I hadn't thought about doing a DSC and thing, but um, he he went on a bit and um, told me that that's what he should do, what we should do, and so I put forward my dissertation for the Doctor of Science, and that was while I was at Edinburgh, um, and uh, so I duly went down there and, and received the DSC, and Actually, that must have been when the dean at Massey um, came up with this uh, proposal to to go back there. So um, that's how they coerced you out of the uh, UK, yeah, then. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, again, you know, it's your alma mater, and it's mm. trying to share what you've been able to do from that school, and I had maintained strong affiliation with the school still, so that that was a pretty proud time, I guess, yeah. Oh, brilliant. And so <clears throat> final question, what three things, and these can be um, experiences, objects, equipment, people, but what three things have been the most important things to your career? And then select one that if you were starting out tomorrow that you would tell yourself that you can't be without. Yeah. Well, it, 
it, it might sound like I'm taking your question very broadly um, and relating it as much to life as to my career. Um, but, of course, with most of us, those are intertwined pretty closely and it's hard to separate them. Um, I, I would say the, the thing that has been the most important to me in the broadest sense is accepting that I had a problem with alcohol and giving it up. Now, that sounds like I'm um, at a confessional or something, but it's not. It's um, It just broadened my mind even more as to what, you know, life and a career is about and about helping other people, not thinking of yourself, um, it was, it really changed me and, and it, it made me a, I think, a certainly a healthier person <laughs> mm. and it promoted my running and triathlon work and everything. And this was while I was up in Edinburgh mm. and, you know, it probably wasn't evident to many people except my family, I'm sure. Well, I know that, um, but mm. it was a very, very, um, it was an eclipse and uh, mm. it meant a hell of a lot. But the other things, I guess, have centred around sharing information and that's what, again, Jack Stewart taught me while I was in practice, he got me to put a little paper in the New Zealand Vet Journal because I had become terribly interested in this, what I think was a, it was a newly recognized disease in dogs um, that occurred when, this sounds like it's on left field, but anyway, um, <laughs> the to control hydatids, they banned the use of fresh meat for feeding dogs in New Zealand. So you weren't allowed to feed raw meat to dogs, mm. which was a huge change to farm dogs. And so they all went and bought these huge, big sausage things that were prepared as a cheap protein source for dogs, which was just, you know, ground up stuff from the abattoirs mm. and heated up and cooked and put in a sausage. And and we were seeing these dogs with very unusual neurologic diseases and one aspect of which was seizures, was epilepsy. And we thought about it and Jack and I decided that well, maybe it's to do with this change in diet. So we fed them some B vitamins and they would get over it. And we then ended up feeding them just thiamine pills, which were cheap as dirt. And we would give boxes of these thiamine pills to our clients and 
they never the ones that used them never had these dogs with with uh, paralysis and seizures and so we wrote it up and um and Bob Jolly's team took it further and looked at the pathology and things and uh so I put a a little article in the New Zealand Vet Journal with a lot of coaxing from my boss and I really got a lot of satisfaction out of that of sharing thoughts with someone else with other people and I was a fairly reserved naive new graduate I wasn't you know jumping up and down and waving flags so it was quite an achievement and I realized how useful that can be so mm. sharing information through formal communications publishing in those days and now of course it's broader than that um mm. i think learning that was pretty important and the other thing of course which goes along with that is is education so when i had the chance to get back into teaching i realized that um teaching's a two-way affair definitely and mm. the other sort of hackneyed phrase is that the next generation is going to be better than you and if you can accept those things then it can be so rewarding mm. uh, not for yourself but for what you see in other people and um so i would never be without that push for education and they've been that's been really important for me oh, that's brilliant that's brilliant that was fascinating absolutely fascinating and thank you so much for giving up your breakfast <laughs> <laughs> to talk to us this morning and i appreciate you getting up so early um i believe you when you say you get up that early but it's part of me thinking you did it so that i wasn't doing this too late but thank you very much anyway yeah, uh, on behalf of beaver and uh, our listeners thank you very much it was a fascinating um fascinating stories so thank you well thank you tim and uh thank you to anyone who happens to want to listen i'm sorry if i've blabbered on a bit too much <laughs>